Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and welcome to the show. My guest this week is Christopher War Smets, a writer-director whose credits include The Overlookers and The Last Hitman, but if you're an Orphan Black fan, you're sure to have seen his behind-the-scenes interviews and featurettes online or lurking in the supplements of the Blu-rays and DVDs of the series. His new short film, This Is Not What You Had Planned, starring Christian Brune, friend of the show, Elizabeth Whitmere, Jefferson Brown, and Natalie Lisinska, was recently made available online as part of the National Screen Institute's NSI Online Short Film Fest. Chris picked Out of Sight, Steven Soderbergh's 1998... Uh, actually, I don't know what to call it. Is it a romance? Is it a thriller? A comedy? A crime drama? Much like the Elmore Leonard novel from which it was adapted, it's all of those things at once a charming, time-jumbled riff on heist pictures grounded in the romance between George Clooney's ex-con Jack Foley and Jennifer Lopez's U.S. Marshal Karen Sisko. It's a throwback to the character thrillers of the 70s and the first indication of the sophisticated studio pictures that Soderbergh would perfect over the next decade. It's funky, it's funny, it's sweet, it's scary. <sighs> Whatever sort of film you think it is, it's so much more. This is someone else's movie. You know... Out of Sight is a film that, well, it, well I'll tell you this. Um, I feel in a way like I kind of reverse engineered in a way because I, I know where we're going to get to by the end of the podcast. And, right. I, and I thought about films that, that I have uh, stolen a lot from over the years or, or, you know, films that have influenced me. And um, and there were, you know, a few I kind of kicked around and one was broadcast news. And uh, I thought about The Limey and I was sort of rewatching stuff. And uh, there was something about Out of Sight that just jumped out at me and I hadn't seen it for a while and I had that kind of um, I was a little nervous actually to, to commit to it to commit to out of sex I thought you know have I outgrown this movie it, it, will I have anything to say about it and uh, uh, there's something there was something about the marriage of uh, the mainstream because uh, obviously Soderbergh is doing you know like a, a big budget yeah. crime film with major stars and it's based on an Elmore Leonard novel and it's coming out the you know uh, a couple years six months after Jackie Brown Jackie Brown is coming out a couple years after Get Shorty Mm -hmm. same producers at one point Sonnenfeld was going to direct it Um, and I was a big Elmore Leonard fan Uh, and I read out of sight and I was really excited to to um, to see what Soderbergh was going to do with with the book Um, and I just I remember that there was something about uh, right away there was there was an energy that it had as soon as the the movie started that he just it's that it's that first shot of you know, the camera like panning around finding Clooney coming out of the bank but it's like it's out of focus yeah and it's zooming in and out and, and it's and it's trying to find him and you know right away. And this was I mean, this was like the the late '90s, and I feel like there there wasn't a lot of films that did that. Mm-hmm. Um, there weren't a lot of films that kind of embraced that '70s aesthetic. Like, like I think now there are for sure. I, I feel like that film definitely went on to influence a lot of other films, a lot of, a lot of TV shows. But um, there was just something about the uh, the way that he was able to to marry all these elements together. Um, 
you know, make it a crime film, make it a uh, a romantic film, uh, give it a real sense of, you know, of style. And uh, it just has all these things that I love in a, in, in, in a movie, like great dialogue, memorable characters, um, both lead characters and supporting roles, like people who come from like one scene, you know, who just, you feel like, you could watch an entire film about them. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, uh, it, and it, it, so it, it's always sort of stuck. It's also kind of stuck in my mind. It's a movie that, a movie that, that definitely I, I end up thinking about a lot. So, yeah. And, and, and it also, I think it's a movie that people don't necessarily, um, think about as much anymore. I don't know if it's a movie that is really in the conversation as much anymore. Yeah, it occupies a weird cinematic space. I, the more I think about it, the, 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 you know, it's it's from a different era. It's from a, a window in time, this tiny window in time when George Clooney was considered box office poison. Mm-hmm. Jennifer Lopez was a huge star, uh, or about to be. Like, mm-hmm. you can feel that she had the energy there. Uh, she was coming up. He was sort of on his way sideways after Batman and Robin and that self-effacing way he yep. took the blame for all of it. Yep. Soderbergh had basically spent the last three years renouncing his previous work. He was in he was in movie jail. He felt he self-imposed movie jail too, which like he was disowning the first four movies he made. Right. Uh, I interviewed him in ninety-six, I guess it would have been the first time I talked to him for um a TIFF. He mm-hmm. brought two films. He had uh, Grey's Anatomy and Schizopolis. Yeah. And he was, he spent almost half of the interview time telling me how much he hated the underneath and how I shouldn't say it was good uh, because I liked it. Oh, I like it too. And, and I it's, find it's yeah. actually sort of a test run for out of sight in a that, lot of ways. Absolutely. And, and I mean, it's the same DP, Sally mm. Davis. And same I, structural trick. Absolutely. Well, that was the, the, the use of color from the underneath. And, I, and when, I, when I, remember, I remember loving the underneath, I saw it on, you know, VHS probably. And I don't. I, I'm sure it was like a pan and scan. Oof. You know, it would have been like, right. It's so beautifully shot in widescreen, yeah, yeah. and um, um, and yeah, seeing it out of sight, I thought immediately. I was like, oh, I was seeing all these. I was seeing these tropes he'd used in, in the underneath, and he was bringing them back in again. Because I mean, the underneath is interesting because, uh, you know, it's a. It's also a, a crime film. Yeah, it's, it's a remake of, of of Criss Cross. Criss Cross. Yeah. Um, but I remember thinking that it had that. It was really interesting. Uh, example of, and I'm sure he would hate this because I don't think he's a guy who's into the the, the author theory at all. Even though I mean his films are always oh. so signature. There's, there's, I mean, you you can tell a Soderbergh film in, in like two minutes. Yeah, but um, it it was like okay, you're making a noir film, but there's these really weird, this weird quirky dialogue. There's like this whole, you know, remember there's a whole sequence where Peter Gallagher and his brother are like arguing about money and he said finally he says what is this like a Eugene O'Neill play like it's very you know and, and yeah. it's, it's, it's it was it was quirky and interesting and I, and I always found it fascinating that you know he didn't that he would renounce it the way you the way you know he did with you that's, yeah. yeah oh totally turned his back on it and 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 by extension he said like what he was saying at the time was that the first four movies he made Sex Lies and Videotape Kafka King of the Hill, which is just beautiful, mm. and the underneath, he said, in some way they're all compromised, and they're not what he wanted, and he doesn't feel like he got it right, and so he had to put himself into the wilderness and make two films mm-hmm. completely outside the studio system and outside his own 
uh, wheelhouse, which were Grey's Anatomy and, and um, Schizopolis, and just embraced whatever weirdness he had to embrace in order to teach himself how to make movies again. I'm paraphrasing because this is 20 years ago, but right. that's more or less what he said. And um, it's such a, a weird assertion to say, oh, my first four movies, which, you know, okay, Kafka's problematic, but the other three, sure. nobody had any trouble with them. No. Uh, Palm d'Or. Yeah, and Sundance and yeah. everything. Yeah, of course. And, and King of the Hill, nobody saw it because Gramercy boned it on release-wise, but it's such a lovely, perfect little film. It's evocative and small, and, you know, it took like 20 years at least to get the remaster done properly. It wasn't even available mm-hmm. on the screen on DVD. Every time we spoke subsequently, and I've interviewed him a number of times over the years, every time we talked, I was like, okay, when's King of the Hill letterboxed? Come on, I have the laser disc, but DVD is the thing now. Let's do that. Yeah, yeah. And he, keeps, he kept saying, um, there's going to be a box set. They're telling Universal's talking about really? it. Really? And it yeah. never happened. Yeah. And I think on some level, it's because it would have involved King of the Hill and the underneath, and he just didn't want to, you know, look at them anymore. Uh, so Criterion finally got him. Right. But... Um, and Kafka is still MIA. Yeah, I have the Japanese DVD. Oh, really? I have yeah. the I have the, the Kafka laser. Right. And and also the King of the Hell laser disc. Mm-hmm. But um, but it's like he ditched formalism. Yeah, and instead he picked up this. I've been trying to figure out what to call it because Tarantino's movies are they feature self aware characters, but the movies themselves I don't know that they are self aware. They maybe nowadays they are the Tarantino ones. Yeah, yeah, the ones that the the sort of that out of sight almost catches up with but mm-hmm. doesn't because. Out of sight and Jackie Brown exist in the same universe as we get to. Absolutely, yeah. Um, but what you get from Soderbergh around that time, especially starting with the underneath, but then rolling forwards, are movies where the films themselves are playing with the audience and they require the audience to invest, uh, even if it's as in, just figure out what color I'm using and what that means in Out of Sight, because there's not mm. a lot. It's not a daring film exactly, and now it's just a Soderbergh movie because we know what they look like. Yeah, but. At the time, I mean, I, I saw it with a preview audience uh, like the week before it opened and five or six hundred people at the York one and nobody knew what to make of it except that they were having a great time. Right. And you could feel the audience struggling with it in a way that... Really? Yeah, a little bit. Just the, the first, just because of the, the time sequencing and the jumping. Because um, I guess they hadn't seen the underneath. But I got it right away and I'm like, oh, I get... Okay, cool. Let's see where this goes. And then, of course, it turns into this incredibly charming romance that has all this other stuff hung on it. Yeah. But it took a while, I think, for for the general public who were cringing at the idea of a George Clooney movie to see that this was a really kind of mature, soft-hearted, intelligent love story that is also all these other things. But it takes a while for that to present itself. And it is a weird mix, too, because then you have these moments of violence that are very visceral mm-hmm. and very sudden. And also funny, but not funny in a... In a Tarantino way, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know, they're they're almost offhanded. I, I mean, obviously, the, the 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 one you can point to the most is the is the white boy Bob. Yeah. Scene on the stairs. Yeah. Which I you know I've been laughing at I think for almost twenty years now. <laughs> um, but that's interesting because you, that that it was they were having not trouble but but struggling with it because I think about this is post Pulp Fiction mm-hmm. and. I remember seeing that movie, opening day, and and that that sense from the audience that you would you know you would hear that collective gasp like oh okay, right, yeah. um, which of course spawned a lot of movies that were sort of you know the um, the, the Tarantino knockoffs that just sort of like a lot of pop culture references and yeah. you know chatty gangsters and I feel like it might have been 
Roger Ebert or, or, or someone who, who talked about it out of sight and said this was kind of the first you know post Pulp Fiction movie that took the ideas like the good ideas from Pulp yeah. Fiction you know without actually ripping off the structure or ripping off you know the, the things in a bad way yeah, I think Pulp Fiction too. It's easier to follow it because the sequences are self-contained. I mean, it yeah. jumbles up the chronology, but you never mix them. Mm-hmm. The, uh, we see what happens to Vincent Vega, and then he's back, and you can figure it out pretty quickly because you're also, you know, that all right. This is a robbery thing. Links from the beginning to the end. Without of sight, it's scrambled in a way that if you hadn't seen the underneath, or you know, Hiroshima Monomore, or any, <laughs> any of the any of the half dozen key art films that Soderbergh carries around in his brain all the time, you might have trouble figuring it out. And I'm, and I'm sure that my be- being familiar with that other stuff is also helpful. Right. Um, but I'd seen the underneath and instantly got, oh, color coding, gotcha. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, well, the fact that you have, you know, like, um, Lompoc is yellow and yeah, Glades is, is blue. blue. Oh, can we talk about Detroit? Like, I want to just, you know, <laughs> like, every time I see that movie, I think about this is the most amazing uh, snow globe version of Detroit. You yeah. know, it's it's like this... It's like this sort of like fantasy Parisian version of Detroit. Like it's just, it's so magical. Yeah. You know, like when she's in the ho- when they're in the hotel together. I mean, it's just uh, you really you, you feel like there's something so you know warm and romantic and Christmassy about Detroit. And then people start dying. People start dying because exactly. the blood looks so much better against the snow. Yeah, 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 exactly. But exactly. it is like creating these individual climates for his for his pieces of the yes. film and it's a, it's he did it again in traffic and i'm sure he, oh, you know, huge. he does it in che mm-hmm. and it's never it's something he's never really stopped doing this sort of complete atmospheric immersion uh whether or not he's doing it chronologically it doesn't even matter like the magic mike films are just these amazing visions of florida and then in the sequel all the different places he goes florida and this is just this, this pastel kind of wonderland yeah yeah where everything is possible yeah yeah you know, if you don't yeah. if you don't screw it up within two seconds right yeah it's a postcard yeah, yeah. and so the visual, yeah, the visual sensibility is is an amazing guide to the film storyline. But then there's the emotional storyline, which is uh, instantly recontextualizes Clooney uh, after you know like five years of him being this high wattage superstar. Movie qu- choices were questionable, but you know ER just made him this huge romantic lead. And then Soderbergh says, "What if he was old and stupid?" Like, yeah, instantly matures him. What if he made the wrong choices <laughs> and I mean, shaved his hairline back? Yeah, just the tiniest <laughs> little things, but these cues that say you're not going to quite get the thing that you want from this movie. You're going to get something that's richer and more interesting, but you have to be willing. And I think that's the proposition he puts forward in almost all of his mm-hmm. films. You have to come with me, and I will show you wonders. Um, and in this case, it's going to be George Clooney as this sort of doofus bank robber who, like, it's not Coen Brothers' stupidity, but it paves the, the road for that character. He's um, he's short fused. He's he's calm, calculating, and prone to making the wrong decision, which is such a fantastic contradiction. But in a believable way. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, that, that's it's what completely that, organic. Because I, I've watched the film three times in the last week, and you know, preparation for this was watch it before I left. And mm-hmm. and the thing that always strikes me is just how believably dumb the criminals are. Yeah. You know, I mean, for him for sure. I mean, the idea of like going out and you know flooding the car after he robs the bank in the first scene and. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's that the great sequence where they've broken into Albert Brooks's house at the end, and you know, and and they're you know they're they're stealing steaks, and Don Cheadle is picking out suits, yeah. and you know, I mean, there's just a, there's such a 
there's such a uh, they they, they kind of lowball themselves. Yeah, you well, know, that's which, Leonard, right? Like, absolutely, the classic Elmore Leonard thing is like if they weren't stupid, they wouldn't be criminals. Yeah, they'd find a way. Like then the contrast with Albert Brooks's character, and even here is sort of pulled forward. It's like this guy's an operator. That's he got caught, but he's not really suffering mm-hmm. in prison. He's doing fine, and he'll come out, and his life will be his again. Except that everything goes to hell. Um, the idea that a white collar criminal would of course he would think he has one up on all of these guys right. in, their, in their scene. And, and I realize now, as I'm saying this, that we're jumping back and forth in the movie the same way. The movie we we, we, we completely are. We can, we can, you can recut this. Yeah, or yeah. I'll just leave this part out where we talk about it and we'll seem like geniuses. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, it's, it functions with so many moving parts mm-hmm. that I think that's where the chronology gets to me, where I'm just amazed at his confidence in thinking that he can pull this off. Um with all of these different story aspects, all these different characters, everybody wants different things. And different tones. Yeah. You know, that's what is amazing to me, is that there, there's so much that he's trying to pull off again. Like, it's, it's you know, it is a crime film, and it takes that aspect very seriously. Um, there is this very sweet, you know, adult love story in the middle of it. Uh, you, there's, there's real, you know, knock-around kind of comedy, and... Uh, it's funny, you know, when I was watching it last week, something occurred to me, a comparison occurred to me that had never crossed my mind before, and it's that this is, it almost feels like the romantic comedy version of Heat. Okay. Right? Because you've got this this idea about these two characters who are kind of like, you know, they have a have a relationship, but they're yeah. always sort of like, you know... They work in the same industry, but they're at opposite poles. Yeah. <laughs> they're at opposite ends. And, and you know, like, like De Niro and Pacino have the, the diner scene in Heat... And then, of course, they both kind of know how it's going to end. It's going to end with, you know, yeah. one of them, you know, Pacino taking out De Niro. This is the same thing where it's like they come together because there's an attraction there. And and they like each other and they respect each other. But ultimately, I mean, there's there's that great moment they have after they slept together in the hotel room. And, you know, she says, what's going to happen? He just says, you know, you'll know, you know. Yeah. And it's great. It's There's such a simplicity to it and such a... Um, that's actually something that struck me this time through that had, I'd never really, uh, had never really got me before. But this idea that, and maybe it's because I'm older now. And I saw, I saw it when I was, I would have been about probably 25, mm-hmm. 26 when I watched it. And being older now, and and Clooney stepping out at the end of the movie up to the top of the stairs and pulling the mask over his face and just, you know. I'm not going to go back. I'm too old for this. Yeah. And if anyone's going to shoot him, he'd rather it be her. If he's going to go out anyway, you know, I, the, it's it's the woman that that he had this amazing connection with. Yeah. Uh, and there was something so kind of beautiful and sad and romantic about that. And uh, it's it's and again, such an unlikely you know shift at the end yeah. emotionally, but it but it works. And in any other movie, it would be a ridiculous cliche. Absolutely. Like, it would just be a groaner. Yeah. But by the time we get there, we understand how he thinks and why he would say that and why he would think it's this huge romantic gesture. You know, the only way to make me stop is for you to kill me. Because um, he's, again, he's making the wrong decision. But it's not the wrong de- Like, we we finally get into his head. And then the the, the little flourish of how they save that how she saves him essentially yeah is just perfectly in character for her as well it's like they save each other by being themselves yes and it's the thing that he can't do because there's no 
like it's heat is about respect and, and out of sight is about love. Mm-hmm. So out of sight ends the only way that it can, which is this magnificent little, oh, by the way, we're going to do this forever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's uh, great. Which it's is fantastic. Great. Yeah. Yeah. And it also means a lot that when we get to that moment at the top of the stairs, she knows why he's doing it. She knows about his uncle he used to work with. Yeah. You know, the uncle that, that was in jail most of his life and then, you know, died in the hospital. Like she knows where he's coming from. And, uh, and she understands this guy. And there's, there's something, yeah, there's, there's such a, there's such a beauty to it, you know, and that really, and again, that comes from this, um, I mean, part of it is just this perfect balance of, of tones that he finds. And I think, you know, and you nail it too, when you talk about the idea that in any other film, this ending would be over the top or ridiculous because Soderbergh always finds like the perfect, the perfect level with the acting. And I'm not sure. I, I don't even know if it's something that is found in the editing room. I think it's something that they, they just do. They're able to find on set. Um, you know, I remember when uh, I remember when I made my first movie and <laughs> yeah, I gave it to um, my lawyer at the time, and and uh, he he watched it and he called me and said, you know, uh, everyone's acting in the same movie. He said that's a really hard thing to do, which yeah. was which a, a great compliment. And I always feel like that with Soderbergh films, like everybody is always in the same film there's nobody who's coming in with some kind of like you know what the hell I mean Jennifer Lopez is a great example yeah because I think the things I'd seen her in this beforehand were things like you know Anaconda yeah Blood and Wine had just Blood and out, Wine yeah well, I'd, seen, was, I'd, I'd you know, seen her in that yeah. and they packaged her as this huge new sex star yeah because she has a scene where she sleeps with Jack Nicholson which right. is you know it's an awkward scene now even but at the time it was just like yeah, she's sensual. There's something that she's being eroticized by the movie. There's something really interesting about the way she holds back and all of that. And then she shows up in this, and it's like a different person. She made no impact on me whatsoever in the thing that the things I'd seen before. And actually, when I heard that she was going to be in this, having read the book, I was disappointed. Um, you know, in, in the book, um, yeah, Karen Siska doesn't seem like she would be not at all. Jennifer yeah, I mean, she's described a different way. Obviously, in, in the in the book, like she's described as being blonde, and they were originally talking about like uh, Nicole Kidman, who's got that kind of at the time had that kind of pretty sure. toughness. You could see her pulling it off. And, and I would and, hope that the studio said you can't have two Batman actors. Oof. No, you can't. Have, different movie, but it doesn't matter. It's two actors from The Peacemaker. Oh, that's true. Right? Jesus, I forgot about The Peacemaker. <laughs> you can't re- Yeah, it's like the, I just, ma- I thought, the magic from The Peacemaker. Yeah, I thought about The Peacemaker not five minutes ago when we were oh, talking really? about Clooney's films. Oh, that's God. the one that poster popped into my head, and then I completely forgot it again. Like it had never happened. Well, that's yeah, not, I'm you sure that's them together. No. No, exactly. Oh, um, but it, The Peacemaker, which I never saw. It's not good. I hear. I, he I, has, I can imagine. He actually has one moment towards the end and it's the only thing that I enjoyed about The Peacemaker. Mm-hmm. There's a moment at the very end where they're racing to de- to deactivate this nuclear this this suitcase nuclear weapon which is the size of a torpedo um and they only have like a minute or two to, and it's in a church i think uh-huh. somewhere some building they've tried to blow up the united nations they've disarmed the terror they've killed the terrorists but they've still have the bomb to deal with and, and kidman is the scientist and she's working to disassemble it and clooney is this polo shirt wearing special agent right so she's rushing and said and she says and like get out like leave me leave me to this get outside i've got like i'll i have this and he just looks at her and delivers some kind of yeah where am i he's the face is where am i going to run to there's no point but he laughs and it's that moment lines up with out of sight beautifully mm. like that it's fatalistic but it's funny and yeah oh god that would not have worked with them together at all no sight. no no you can't because he's so much more interesting than she is on film and i don't know when that happened because 
when I first saw her in, in Dead Calm and yeah. even in Days of Thunder, she was magnetic. She's so she, the magnetic is exactly the word yeah. for it. Yeah. No, I, I it's funny because I think there may be. Uh, it took one scene for me to be convinced that Jennifer Lopez was the perfect Karen Sisko, and it's amazing. Like you know, I don't think I like her in anything else. Yeah. Is it the tussle scene? Oh no no! I, I mean I think I, no. It's the very first scene with her with uh, with her dad. Okay. Where she gets the gun. Um, oh, Dennis with Dennis Farina, yeah. and it's such a fantastic scene, and they play it so well, and you know, and she's just got this, you know, I was thinking about it, and there's that that toughness that she has, that a lot of the time I feel like they try to sand that element off, um, because obviously she's very, I I would imagine like a really, you know, ambitious, driven person in real life. I would assume, I mean, right? You have that career without wanting it, but she never really plays characters like that she's always kind of they, they kind of soften her and she's kind of you know I don't know a, a little watery and uh, and this she's just got that that steel core you know yeah. you, like you buy her as a law enforcement officer you know yeah and uh, and now and, what is it like 16 years later she's playing one again in, or Badge of Lies or something mm-hmm. uh, and she's like that's where she should be because mm-hmm. you want her to be steely you want her to have that backbone I and mean, it's weird that she was, should have had that in Anaconda but didn't oh god because she was just packaged as the girl in the tank top. yeah it's terrible yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and that's that you know like that's a great example of a movie where like you know John Voight is in a different yeah. film entirely yeah yeah, yeah you yeah. know but, Eric uh, Stoltz is sort of kind of there but kind of sort of not you get to kind of literally like, like sleep through the entire film yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was, I mean, I, I don't think it was, because I've been saying this for almost a year now, and mm-hmm. I finally found the quote. It was it was Edgar Wright who said it about Scott Pilgrim. It's like, everyone making that movie is pulling the same rope at the same level of tension. That's how you do it. You just tell everyone exactly what you want, and then you just let them do it. And it also feels a little bit like there's this perfect kind of um, conflagration of all these talents at the same time mm-hmm. in the movie, where, yeah. you know, you're kind of amazed... That you have, obviously, Clooney and Lopez, but just Don Cheadle and Louis Guzman and Viola Davis and Isaiah Washington and Steve Zahn, like, uh, Ving Rhames. I mean, every single person who steps on screen is kind of on the way up. Um, they are they are perfectly suited to that role, but they also bring something. I find that uh, I mean, Ving Rhames is a great example. Like he's somebody in this film. There's a sweetness that he has, and like a warmth that he has. I've never really seen him exhibit anywhere else. Like he's just so, you know, he's so. Uh, I don't want to say affable, but there's something so there's something so funny about him. Um, like I think with the, there's a that scene at the end where you know Clooney and and Albert Brooks are in his study, and they're still kind of like you know going over old business and the, you know Ving Rhames is kind of like throwing his arms up in the air like oh my god these yeah. guys like come on like we gotta get out of here like what, yeah. what are you doing um, and the fact that he, you know he, he calls his sister he's this very religious guy and um, right. you know and that, and, that, and that smile that he has at the end when he drives off with the diamonds is just I mean you know yeah there's, there, it's interesting he has a real I mean again like Tarantino there's, there's this gift for finding the best in the actors but it's a very it's a very different energy that that Soderbergh minds for them, I find. Yeah, you know, the real, there's such a humanity to it. Well, even to the point of casting Keaton in one scene. Oh God, um, which which is the yes. the Tarantino verse colliding yes. with the Soderbergh verse, which, you know, it's it should be matter and antimatter. Yeah, and Keaton is playing a slightly different version of Ray Nicolette. Which Absolutely, is so fascinating. Yeah, in in Jackie Brown, Ray Nicolette is um, an abusive operator. Mm-hmm. He's, he's 
he's a, a heartless kind of he's not corrupt but he's not not corrupt either yeah. he's just sort of a, a jerk fed mm-hmm. and in this he's a boyfriend like he's yeah. recontextualized as this sort of dipshit boyfriend who has one tiny scene and you just get to appreciate the fact that he pulled this off that that not only did keaton pull this off but soderbergh managed to because jersey films had produced both movies but he got him for a movie from a different director a different studio Studio, yeah uh and and i think it's like the first wink at this expanded cinematic universe which we all just take for granted now. of elmore leonard yeah yeah and uh the leonard verse the leonard verse and there's something funny about the fact that he is he is different there's something um He's he's very reactive in that scene. Mm-hmm. He's kind of oh, sitting, he's great, right? Like he, yeah. he he like Farina kind of drives that scene with him. And it, there's something so great about yeah, exactly. Like seeing that character who was uh, really, you know, it's like almost a villain manipulating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like he's, he he manipulates in Jackie Brown, and, and this he really is this, you know, he's such an interesting. I actually remember. I'd heard that he was in the movie. Okay. And I didn't know what, that he was playing Ray Nicolette. And somebody I know had seen the film and said, um, oh, he's playing a character kind of like his character in Jackie Brown. And then I'm watching going, no, no, wait, yeah. he's actually playing, he he's it. actually yeah. playing Ray Nicolette. This is, and it was so, I just, I, I was just sat there, you know, kind of amazed. And I'd forgotten that, forgotten that in the book, Ray Nicolette has a very small yeah. part in it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a cool... And it's cool, and, and that and that and that does speak to that that you know tonal disparity between Tarantino and Soderbergh, where he just um, there's a there's a yeah there's, there's again that that sense of of playfulness and sort yeah. of bemused humanity to it, which is so interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's it's something that has come up. Like I've discussed it with him once or twice. Um, with Heaton? Uh, no, I've never I've oh. never had the opportunity. Oh. No, with with Soderbergh. Okay. Um, we've talked about how he's never made a horror movie. He's never made like he's come close. Right. That, that's how really we got it. Well, Solaris is sort of an emotional mm. horror film, and we we got into that that way. We were talking about the tones and how there's a scene in Che which is horrific, mm-hmm. but it's not like it's not it never tips into that genre and that's I think that's when we were talking about it and he said that the he's not he doesn't think he's interested in uh, those extremes of cinema but not because they don't offer the opportunity stylistically he just I think he thinks there's no emotion there's no emotional component to horror once you introduce that you're scaring the audience you're not scaring the characters it's a different relationship to the to the narrative that you to the texture of the film and he said that the same reason he doesn't want to make a superhero movie. Mm-hmm. He feels he's done that. The, mm-hmm. the Ocean's movies, he said, are his superhero sure. films. But he's not interested in going into giant genre stuff. Like, even Solaris, which is close to horror, and technically science fiction, really isn't. Like, it's just about people in rooms dealing with stuff uh, and dealing with their own emotions and confronting stuff. It's got, you know, there's space travel, but you never really see it. It's not important. It's, um, it's not about spectacle. It's about inner turmoil. And I think that's why Out of Sight works so well, because he's so suited to Leonard, who would just, you know, entire chapters are just dialogue. Just dialogue. It's and not he, about plot. He loves to listen to people talk. Yeah. And again, it's, it's, a, it's a very, you know, it's not ostentatious. It's very observational. Mm-hmm. I was watching The Girlfriend Experience on the weekend. I'd never, right. I'd never watched that before. And oh. I mean, the entire movie is just a series of business transactions. Yeah. It's, it's, just, it's just conversations between people. And, it, and it's these very kind of you know, subtle power struggles that go on. Uh, and and there's also that scene in the Limey where, like, the, you know, which which Lem Dobbs complains about on the commentary <laughs> track, but the, the, these thugs who are talking about, you know, a sliding scale, you right. know, what they're getting paid. 
and and they get into a debate about it on the, on the commentary track and Soderbergh's like look like people don't talk about money in in movies like these yeah. are the kind of things that you don't the conversations that I'm not hearing I, w- I want to hear them yeah and, you know? and then he made Magic Mike which is a film about what people are willing to do to get paid mm-hmm. now, like that is it's that's its mission statement um, and it's and the girlfriend experience comes directly from that mm-hmm. and, and it's just it's so fascinating to watch him apply his interests to existing things oh yeah genres books um, television series now but he is such a fascinating filmmaker and He's an eavesdropper. Yeah, yeah. And Out of Sight gives you the sense that you've wandered into somebody's movie that maybe you weren't supposed to see. Like, it feels like an assembly cut or a rough cut in so many different ways. Like, ideas are bouncing around inside of it. Well, it was interesting because, you know, this is one of the first DVDs that I that I ever had. Mm-hmm. And I listened Probably to Probably one of the first DVDs Universal released. Yeah, yeah. One of the first real special editions. Yeah. Uh, I, and I still have it. Uh, I, I can't... I, I almost sold it a couple of years ago. I just like, you know what? i got to hang on to this. Like, this is just means too much to me. Yeah. And, I mean, that commentary track I played over and over again. And it was funny to listen to it again in you know, in the last week and hear all the scenes that the producers and the studio uh, wanted them to cut. You know, like that, yeah. we mentioned it before, but the sort of the um, the afterglow scene, not even really an afterglow scene, but, but, it's, but it's, their, it's their post-sex scene mm-hmm. in the hotel room. And it's, you know, the key to the movie. It's the key to the film. <laughs> they want, and they wanted them to cut it, like right down to the editing room. They like, and, you know, he says that Ann Coates was holding that reel in her hand saying, are you sure? Like, we should put the scene back in. Like, it, it came that close to never being in the film. Yeah. And it's just, it, I mean, it really is. It's the key. And it, and it, and I think it's also what elevates that character from just being kind of a, a dumb criminal because he's self-aware. Yeah. You know? And there's something so, there's something so poignant about that scene, the way that, that he's, um, he staged them. He tries to get her to lay down in the bed with him and she just doesn't even move. There's that great stillness to her at the, and, and that, she has that all throughout the film, I think. I mean, that's one of the things I love about her in the film is that she just is the ability just to not move and to not react and just to, to, to wait yeah. uh, is so great. But that, and it's all, and, and when he, that little speech he gives about, you know, the, uh, how dumb criminals are, you know, and if you were, uh, and what, what it would mean for her to, um, you know, to sleep with someone, sleep with a criminal just for, just for the thrill of it, uh, and it's almost sort of this David Mamet kind of rhythm to it, you know. Why, you know, what, what does he say? He says, um, "Why would you think that? You know, why would I think that about you?" Right. And he's just so he just he really really wants her to know that he he respects her and cares about her. And I can't imagine like I can't imagine the film without it. Yeah. Well, yeah. that scene in the and and it is the the bizarre. It's not even a contradiction. I don't know what you'd call it, but it's the idea that a studio, uh, when when presented with something like this, mm-hmm. which is simultaneously new wave cinema and classic studio romance, like it is an old school movie star movie. Oh, and everyone looks gorgeous. Yeah, yeah. I mean, everyone is their best versions of themselves, yeah. except for Clooney, who's playing against that, which makes <laughs> right. it more romantic. Absolutely. Uh, and. They wanted, like, they wanted that out, and and also like Soderbergh's instincts weren't a hundred percent on this either, because there's a story about how he wanted to shoot the trunk scene in a single take. That's right. And in the end, went a different way with it because it was just too either dark or monotonous, or it happened too early in the film, or he moved it and then cut some of it. I think monotonous. He said that when he screened that for the preview audience, you could just feel the air being sucked out of the room, and then it was like a good 
20 minutes before the audience was back on board again because right. everything about the movie is so is so jazzy and I mean New Wave is a great way of describing it like it's very there's jump cuts and these little zooms and you know there's I mean again I, I come back to the word playful again and yeah, again yeah, with yeah. this movie but um, to all of a sudden go from that to just locking on them in the trunk as I mean I've seen the scene it's on the, the DVD mm-hmm, yeah. and it's 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 good but it doesn't have that same doesn't have the energy of the rest of the, rest of the film yeah you know? I wonder if maybe the only other way to, to keep it would be to put it in later but that wouldn't make sense either it wouldn't make sense either because yeah. that's, that's I mean it, it, I think it really comes about 12 minutes in yeah you it's know really they're, soon. they're really soon they're locked in together and um, I mean you know without that yeah you, that's, that's your that's your inciting incident <laughs> as, uh, <laughs> as, as the the gurus would say yes and we're recording this three, day, three or four days after Robert McKee just shat the bed on that oh god with his reviews of Spotlight Spotlight this <laughs> other one Room, Un- Room how it changes genres halfway through and therefore is terrible I'm sure that Robert McKee hated this movie I was wondering I mean I'd love to uh, and this is what I said to uh, to Lenny Abramson on Twitter mm-hmm. as soon as he tweeted that out it's like well the only McKee worth listening to is the one that Charlie Kaufman wrote in uh, Adaptation right right because right. the real one is apparently a jerk yeah um, but it's fundamentalism right it's like this is the only way of seeing something and therefore anyone else is wrong but this yeah this movie would hopefully make Robert McKee very angry because it takes every risk that he warns people away from and that's the only way you make art Mm -hmm. if you follow a formula you will get a formula film and this one think like I'm thinking of what is it a dozen Leonard adaptations uh, over the last 20 years yeah the only ones that really burst like Get Shorty which is just delightful uh, candy colored version of Leonard yeah and Jackie Brown which is good but i still think tarantino messes it up a bit do you think so yeah it could be there's an amazing 97 minute movie in there because i think it's funny because i'm not a huge fan of get shorty i loved okay the book and i felt like the the candy colored quality um turned me off because it did feel a little cartoonish mm. uh and jackie brown for me has been a grower over the years yeah i have to admit i haven't watched it in about probably haven't watched it in 10 years oh definitely watch it again because yeah. um, now I think I'm Forster's age right, right oh god um, yeah well you might have the same reaction I did to, to Clooney's near the end of the yeah. Out of Sight uh, but I remember reading an interview with Scott Frank mm-hmm. when Out of Sight came out and he was talking about, about Jackie Brown what he thought of it and he said you know I think that Tarantino did an amazing cinematic version of what it feels like to read an Elmore Leonard novel. Oh, that's interesting. With all the digressions and all the, you know, oddball scenes that that those books possess. Whereas he said, but I really feel like if you're going to take a book and adapt it for the screen, it's got to have some kind of spine to it. You know, and this, and, and, and he was... Obviously, obviously comparing what he'd done with, right. but I, but I think he he really does find that like he he does. Um, it's interesting because he jettisons a lot of stuff from the book. Um, have you read? Have you read out of stuff? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, th- this has got a very in, in the book's got a very kind of a bleak ending. Yeah, because like Buddy Buddy stays in the house. Buddy dies. There's no Ripley character. The the, the Brooks yeah, character. Yeah, it's just a robbery. Just a robbery, and it's and it and it's 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 uh, you know, it's dark. Um, not in a bad way. I mean, I love the book, but you read that you, and you think, God, the house is going to be a movie. And he somehow, Frank somehow found a way to keep all the best elements of the book, the characters, the dialogue, um, that charm. Because, I mean, it's probably the most romantic thing that Leonard's ever written. I would say. Yeah. Right? I like can't it, think of anything. Like, all the, 
all the other weird romantic angles in Justified were invented for the show. Right. With his approval, but right. still, like, that's that's not in the text. That's not really not his thing. Yeah. You know, and, uh, um, but, but making it satisfying, like, you know, bringing the diamonds in, they actually are able to find the diamond at the end, or, you know, inventing this great little, uh, tag with Sam Jackson's character yeah. which is so great and which kind of which is interesting do you know the origin of that scene well I know that they broke it late but I don't yeah. know yeah um, well they didn't know how they were going to how they are going to leave the audience feeling satisfied without without doing something kind of cheeseball and Scott Frank was banging his head against the wall and he was talking to Elmore Leonard and and who of course you know would would talked to lots of law enforcement, lots of criminals to get, you know, real life ideas for his books. And just in passing mentions this guy who had broken out of prison like eight times. That's right. and he's like, wait a second, wait a second. He broke out of prison eight times? And the wheels start turning. And it's this amazing scene um, that, you know, and, and Soderbergh so brilliantly casts Sam Jackson, which yeah. should, you know, again, this should not work. Yeah, it You're, should break it apart. It should break it apart. You cannot bring... Sam Jackson in 1998 into the end of a movie without uh, distracting the audience and somehow and and his reasoning was as soon as you bring Sam Jackson on for that scene as an audience you believe every word that comes out of his mouth yeah it's the authority absolutely and I, when I saw it in 98 the audience loved him yeah instantly you, yeah. you could just feel he shows up and he looms out of the shadow and people just went Oh yeah! And they were happy to see him. Yeah, and they knew that everything is going to work. Everything's going to be again, okay if he's telling you these things. They're going to happen. Yeah, and that last moment, and again, it's like like a wonderful little pop song in itself. Mm-hmm. That last self-contained sequence, because that is an amazing short film on its own. Oh, it really is. And because the like the A story is over, mm-hmm. uh, you get to feel Lopez's. You get to feel Karen's presence in that scene, even though she's not in it, which mm-hmm. is kind of amazing. The, the sense that she's, you know, she's smart enough to have engineered this, and therefore she's worthy of him, uh, which is the thing that all romantic comedies, or not all romantic, it's the thing that drives all romantic comedies, because when you're introduced to someone and someone else, and the movie says these two people are, are subjects, you will, you know, in the back of your mind, they're going to end up together because that's why you're here. That's right. the kind of movie you want to see. So for me, the joy of a romantic comedy is when you demonstrate that when the characters earn that. And it almost never happens because the whole point of romantic comedies is that people are put together because they are meant for each other. And so there's very little work. So there has to be a phony third act complication where you're like, oh, you said you slept with that guy and they have to break it all apart. It's the end of When Harry Met Sally. Right. It's what kind of literalizes the idea that he finally figures out that he's worthy of her and that she deserves him, which is a weird narcissistic way to frame it, but perfectly in line with the character. Here and out of sight, it doesn't even happen on camera. We know they're perfect for each other. They know they're perfect for each other. But they all have... Both characters have perfectly good reasons for why they can't be together. And so the only way to do that is to devise a plan in which they will continue to do this forever. And it isn't ever mentioned on camera. It doesn't come up. Like, it just germinates over the course of the story. And and that's one of the brilliant things about that ending. It's completely in keeping with the style of storytelling we've seen all the way through. Yeah. And I think it was Billy Wilder who said, um, if you let the audience add up, you know, A plus B, yeah. they will love you forever. And that's, I mean, you know, you you understand what that means when that Sam Jackson character is in the back of the van, that he's broken out. That, you know, it's, it's, 
nothing is said and everything is said. Yeah, it's and an elliptical storytelling. It's so beautiful. Yeah. Oh, it's so gorgeous. And and uh, and and that just that little shot of her where she almost, as the van pulls away, almost kind of like buzzes the camera but doesn't quite. Yeah, you know, it's like a half smile. It's a half it's smile. A yeah, and it's a secret between her and us. Yeah, where again we're part of it. We're we're involved. We're we're invested in their relationship, but we also get to be rewarded for that investment, which, again, a lot of movies don't do. Happily Ever After, eh, mm-hmm. that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a line from David Kep that I quote a lot on the show. Uh, he likes to end on the promise of happiness. He's not interested in happiness as an ending, but if you can go out with the idea that everything is going to work out if these people work at it or they try a little harder, then you, you know, your whole room is going to love you. I think that's the only way you can really do it. Yeah, I really do. And, uh, and it's interesting, too, because if you, if you take that scene out, you pretty much have a, a a reasonably accurate adaptation of the book because yeah. the book ends with the you know the, the phone conversation between between Karen and her dad yeah. you know where he says my, my little girl the tough babe I remember when, when when Leonard died like that's what I I posted that on Facebook I, I, I transcribed that last page I think it's such a beautiful way to end the book but um, you know not necessarily the most satisfying ending for a film yeah. and and you know the way that that Frank is able to synthesize Leonard's language and kind of mimic it in a way that you don't really know, you know, what's his and what's from the book, and it just it it it's isn't there's such a such a naturalism to it. That's, yeah. You know, it's uh, to me it's one of the greatest uh, book adaptations because I mean I usually like you read a book and then you see the movie and it's disappointing because it's 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 so much less than what you imagined, and this really felt like. You know, it wasn't equal to the book for me. Yeah. yeah. I actually have a, a, a pretty hard and fast rule about that. I won't read a book if there's a film coming. Right. Because I just... It happened once or twice. Gone Girl landed in my lap before the, the adaptation was announced, yeah. I guess. And everybody was saying, oh, this is so great. So yeah. I did read that. But I find, like, it poisons me for the movie. Or at least it puts me on the back foot because I've got the movie in my head. I've already adapted it. Like, I've seen it in my head as I read the book. And that's a great example. Like, I didn't really love... Gone Girl the movie mm-hmm. loved the book experience but had you read it first? I had read the book first right. and like read it in like a white heat like read most of it in like a, a single night and uh, and to me the, the movie was a letdown in comparison but yeah and it, I'm, I feel the same way I'm, I'm always very you know it's funny like it, it's, it's God it's, it's trying to choose between you know that incredible internal literary experience and uh, and all that creates for you versus like something that's so um, immediate and visceral in a in a film, um, and usually, yeah, I'm the same way. I'll usually pick the, I'll like, pick the latter. I'll pick the film, but yeah. you know, I'm I'm. This is this is this is yeah, the rare example where I feel like uh, you know both are equally good. Yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know which I'd recommend first. Uh, I guess because I'd read the book, um, but years earlier. Mm-hmm. I guess it would be okay yeah. to start with the book because the film does enrich it rather than work against it. I'd happily recommend the, you know, the movie like first, you, actually. If you go back and read the book after, yeah. you'll feel things are missing. Have you read the other short story that Karen is in that kind of fills in her backstory? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. It's in, is that in When the Women Come Out to Dance? When the Women Come Out, yeah. 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 Which has Karen Sisko and Raylan. Raylan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the uh, the other Karen Sisko, um, Carla Gugino, who was just so good at that in, yeah. in the TV series, the short-lived TV series mm-hmm. that no one understood right. was good. Right. Um, 
I got to reprise the role a tiny bit in one episode of Justified. They had to change her name. Oh, did oh I didn't know that. Yeah, she shows up. She's in I think season three. What are the, what's her role? Like, what is her? She's playing Karen Cisco, uh, and she has a different name. She's a U.S. Marshal. She's a U.S. Marshal. She's from someone else's office, and she's they introduce her, and she says something about how oh yeah it's my married name now. Uh, and is her just, first name Karen? I don't know that it is. I don't yeah. know that we ever hear it. Yeah, it might be Catherine. But it's one of those moments where you just sit there and go, I did hear about it, this. This. Should, this should be another thing. And, yeah. and they were going to bring her back for the final episode, but they couldn't make the timing work. Oh. She was in Australia shooting San Andreas. Oh, it's too bad. Um, but she, we got to talk about that a little bit when she came through on the press tour and, and just how frustrating it is to see other people doing that role. Yeah. Uh, not that role, but to, she mentioned something about how frustrating it is as an actor to see someone else nailing the tone and being embraced for it whereas her show just kind of struggled mm-hmm. and so going back and playing it again was just like see what we could have done you idiots look what look what look what this show could have been but you know it's in, it's worth noting that when out of sight came out it was not a hit no it did very poorly it was misunderstood even then yeah because you, know? you have this i mean it's if you know soderbergh's work if you know clooney's work it's revelatory mm-hmm. like it really is the game changer it's the thing that lets him make oceans 11 and become financially successful it's the thing that lets him that gives Universal the confidence to let him make Aaron Brockovich mm-hmm. and then traffic after that like that's the ball starts rolling with Out of Sight for Soderbergh because everybody who needed to love it loved it even if a mass audience didn't well I, I think it was, the, was it the um, uh, the National Board of Review gave it the best picture of the year that sounds right yeah yeah like it got some really amazing accolades I don't think it even got a single Oscar nomination I think it got like a Adapted? Did it get an adapted screenplay for Frank? I want to say yes. Uh, no, I don't think it did. That's just. Wrong. I don't think it did. But you know, and 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 you know, this cover, which I'm so glad that the Blu-ray restores this yeah. is the poster, the original poster. Um, you know, which I love. Like I used to see this in the in the subway. Yeah. And I was, oh god, I can't wait to see Out of Sight. And uh, I think it <laughs> it probably turned most people off. It's yeah. Very like it's very kind of like. You know, 1960s. Yeah. It's a, real, it's a real throwback. It's stylized in a way that now we just accept. Right. Because this movie made it okay to do that again, even though it took another 10 years for that sensibility to filter down. Um, I think, you know, the 70s revival really started 10 years ago now, mm-hmm. where people started saying, oh, let's, you know, make movies the way they used to be made. And it was because tastes had changed and, and the world had evolved a little bit, and also because Soderbergh was making them again. Well, that's it. You look at those movies like The Limey, like Out of Sight. And um, like traffic at, owes a lot yeah. to like the observational stuff from the sixties and seventies as well. And For sure, but if you look at them just objectively from a visual standpoint, you they feel like TV shows now. Mm-hmm. They feel like TV series now. Like that, they're shot that way. They're edited that way. Um, I, I want to say it was like American Crime or something. Somebody was showing me some episodes of that, and um, it was it was edited in this very sort of elliptical. Soderberghian kind of way where you're jump cutting and dialogue is kind of tracking over top of the cuts and really? yeah I was I was like wow this is really interesting like I, you, I cannot imagine this happening on a mainstream network TV show um, you know 10-15 years ago and now it's accepted now you know and, and he sort of he, he made that palatable again yeah, yeah. I, I think he doesn't get enough credit for just how influential he is as a filmmaker because he's so singular that why would you even? Mm. Why would you try to imitate that? Why would you try to do that? But instead, it's not that he's being imitated, but it's the the ideas he's putting out into the world are filtering through. Like people embrace what he's doing because it's so joyful. Like, and that's the other thing, too, about Out of Sight, where I didn't even mention the score. 
Oh, which is the, the other key, right? Yes. It's the thing that tells you everything's going to be okay even mm-hmm. when people are shooting each other. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's always, you know, uh, it's always buoyant. Yeah. And, and uh, I mean, it's riffing on soul music. It's and, got and a Lalo Schifrin kind of quality to yeah. it as well. But there's also, um, because it is coming out in the late 90s, there's, there's a bit of a, almost a trip-hop quality to yeah, it yeah, at, yeah. at times. Um, so, it, so, it's, so it's sort of everything old is new again. Uh, but yeah, that's a good point. Like I never thought about that before. But you do feel like you do feel like the score is helping carry you along. And of course, then you know Holmes did a lot of music for Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, and those are the only movies that he that so. And, and at the same time, like simultaneously, even uh, with the Limey and a few other things, Soderbergh starts shifting away from orchestral scores. Yeah. To the point where like the Magic Mike films have a little ambient stuff in it, but otherwise it's all diegetic. Like there's no score music. Mm. Um, or Haywire or something like that where it's minimalist and specific. Right, Haywire, there's complete, there's scenes, I mean, there's, there's fight scenes that are completely silent except for the sound effects. Yeah. Um, and that was something interesting about this, I'm sort of talking about that that mix of, of what he's bringing in in terms of an indie sensibility with um, uh, a big studio uh, demands. The opening scene of Out of Sight, which we already talked about, which has music, he originally wanted to start it with just the sounds of the street. Right. So you just you just you know, in Miami, panning around, you find him, and it was actually his producer saying, "No, you gotta you have to have music here so people know what kind of movie it is." Yeah. You know. And it's absolutely the right decision. Absolutely, it is. Yeah. yeah. Although, what is Spielberg gets through? It isn't until Bridge of Spies this year that, or last year that he can score an opening sequence without any music. Oh yeah, that's right. Seduced by the New York subway ride and, and all yeah. the, the noise of it. That's great. That's a great sequence. Yeah, yeah. It kind of yeah. Is. yeah. Um, so, the wrap-up question yes. then is the same as well, which is that we've touched on this already. Mm-hmm. But what what of the of the Soderbergh aesthetic or what of out of sight have you personally borrowed, looked to, <laughs> saluted, cannibalized? <laughs> cannibalized is a great word. <laughs> cannibalized is an excellent word. Um, my second feature, Last Hitman is uh, a pretty shameless rip on on out of sight and uh and leonard in general uh and it was actually something that you know watching it again really remind real i realized how much stuff that i'd ripped off that i'd forgotten i'd ripped off and the central relationship in that film between you know joe mantegna's hitman character and then liz whitmere's you know daughter who's like his wheelman uh, so close to the the Karen Marshall. It's it's embarrassing. Actually, I'm I'm, I'm embarrassed to discuss this. Um, I even had my uh, my composer do kind of like a little funky, you know, David Holmes type uh, piece of music for one scene, and uh, like that sort of that's sort of like the nadir of, of being influenced by this film but is this one of those good artists borrow great artists steal kind of situations oh, I, probably not <laughs> <laughs> probably not I think this is probably I think if anybody watches that film now it's just it's, I'll be embarrassed but um, but 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 beyond that I mean I, I think the I mean as I said this is one of the first DVDs that I got so those commentary tracks for this and for the limey were um, you know were kind of like a, a film school yeah. for me and the way he would talk about um, the way he worked with actors the way he would set up shots or uh, just his approach to filmmaking I think those lessons are ones that I've carried through on other on, on you know everything that I've done um, you know like allowing uh, and yeah we discussed this earlier the idea of like everyone existing in the same film finding mm-hmm. a tone like finding a really kind of like even tone is always so important to me and um you know the, the use of natural light 
uh, you know, in a lot of Soderbergh's work and the way he uses the, uh, the way he uses the camera, the way that he uses, the way that he allows things to fall out of focus. He's sort of the anti-De Palma, right? Because yeah. De Palma's always like, well, everything can be in focus. You know, we've got to use the, the lenses. People might miss something important. Yeah, right, right. Uh, and I love the fact that so often, you know, Soderbergh will frame a shot where it's where something's out of focus. It's really key. And I love that. I mean, there, there was a whole scene in The Girlfriend Experience where, you know, like yeah. they're, they're talking in the foreground and they're out, they're out of focus. Um, yeah, color. I mean, I, I honestly feel like he's probably the filmmaker who has influenced me the most because he made filmmaking seem very approachable. Right. He made it seem he made it seem doable. He made it seem seem like you didn't need to be James Cameron. You didn't need to be someone who was manipulating everybody or yelling at everybody. You, you, he he presents this idea um, of everyone working together and and collaborating and and that's how you bring the best out of people. So that and this was really I mean I'd seen other Soderbergh films before this but this was this was the one where I really felt like there was an energy here I like and, and he carries that through to, to today and uh, and the humanity yeah, yeah. I, I'm constantly surprised by people who say that they find his films cold I don't get that at all there's so much there's so much pleasure in, in the filmmaking itself like he's inviting you to, to share how much fun he's having making these movies Movies like this, especially, but also even in stuff like Che, where there's formal playfulness. Which I haven't seen. I'm embarrassed to say I haven't seen Che. It's one of the few I haven't seen. It's. I I was sure when I saw I saw it at Cannes. It was mm-hmm. the one year I went. To oh Cannes. wow! I had the one experience mm-hmm. of seeing all of Che in, in wow. a single sitting. Yeah. Um, and it's one of those things where when you see it, you think they're immediately going to announce that this is a work in progress and they're going to try to turn it into some distributor will get their hands on this and turn it into a three arm right exactly and then the more distance you get from it the better it gets the the warmer it is and Mm. the more complex it is and and you like you have to let the film stew Mm -hmm. for months but it's yeah totally an investment worth making yeah well they're films for patient viewers yeah and people who really love I think who you know kind of love bathing in films yeah, you know, I, I think we probably a, both <laughs> both share that quality. It's a good way to put it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, out of sight is a good steam. It is a good steam, and not mm. just that scene in the bathtub. That's true. <laughs> My thanks to Chris Warsmetz, and seriously, check out this is not what you had planned at nsi-canada.com, either in the online short film fest or just by typing Smets into the search box. You can find Chris on Twitter at CWSmets, all one word, and you can find Out of Sight in an excellent Blu-ray and DVD special edition from Universal Studios Home Entertainment. It's also available for sale and rental on iTunes and Google Play. It's really good, but you knew that already. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast. S-E-M-Cast, or on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes... Um, promise not to break into your house and rob your aquarium. Thanks for listening. <laughs>